In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made, us known, he made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. That's all in prequel to this prayer. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Everlasting Lord, what a joy it is to be able to gather together as your people here at Parkway and, and hear your word and hear it preached and to know that you are at work in our midst through your word and through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we are here, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, that we will not be the same as when we came in. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I... Uh, heard the story of a couple who had two uh, ill-behaved little boys, ages 8 and 10. Now, I'm sure if you have boys that age, they're all perfect, right? Now, uh, this couple were at their wit's end. So the, the, they contacted their pastor, who had been successful in the past in rehabilitating disobedient children. The pastor asked to see the boys individually. The 8-year-old was sent to meet him first. He sat down and asked him sternly, where is God? The boy made no response, so the pastor repeated the question in an even sterner note. Where is God? 
Again, the boy made no attempt to answer, so he raised his voice even more and shook his finger in the boy's face. Where is God? At that, the boy bolted from the room, ran directly home, and slammed himself in his closet. His older brother followed him into the closet and asked what happened. The younger brother replied, We're in real big trouble this time. God is missing, and they think we did it. This being the fourth in our series in prayer, I guess you can guess that the topic is prayer. As uh, we seek together during this interim time, God's intervening work in our midst. So I'm asking you, as I've been asking you, to commit to daily prayers for our congregation. And as we do so, I want you to consider this question that the pastor asked that boy. Where is God? See, this Sunday we'll be looking at another prayer of Paul as we are given multiple models of prayer in God's Word. Paul here, as you can see, connects his prayer with his praise of God, as we saw in the early part of this uh, chapter. This is what he's doing when he says, For this reason I have not stopped giving thanks to you, thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. See, Paul praises God because God as he says, has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He says also that the Father chose us in Jesus before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. See, what Paul is describing here is God's love, God's sovereign love. In fact, he says, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. See, God didn't bless us because there is something intrinsically good in us. It's all through his amazing, immeasurable grace, which he has freely given us in Jesus, the one he loves. See, Paul goes on to say that in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, so that you and I might be the praise of his glory. See, what Paul is saying is that you and I were included in Christ when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, as we saw here. And Paul tells us that it is this that is the reason that he prays. This is his motivation to pray. Why? Because of God's sovereign plans are being worked out. And so this causes Paul to pray. As Paul thinks about God's sovereign plan for redemption being worked out in the lives of God's people, it becomes the foundation and motivation for him to pray. And it should be for us as well. You know, over the last 15 years of working with church leaders, I found this to be one of the most difficult things for American Christians to really grasp. We tend to value individuality and freedom of choice so highly that even us in our reformed circles, while we give acknowledgement to God's sovereignty, God's grace, and God's providential election, we rarely pray as if we really believe it. 
Our prayers tend to be shallow. They tend to be toward worldly ends and not the weighty spiritual ends. I think that's why we need to spend time letting God's word guide our prayers. And so uh, this week I'd encourage you to lay this portion of Ephesians before you with the notes that I'll be giving you and let Paul's prayer here in God's infallible word guide you in your prayers. So the first point on your outline, speaking of your notes, is this. Because God is sovereign, Paul offers thanksgiving for God's intervening sovereign grace in the lives of the Ephesian Christians. But not for their circumstances. You see, Paul's gratitude is to God for the outworking faithfulness in the lives of the Ephesian believers not for the circumstances of their life. Not because everything is going so beautifully and smoothly and well in their lives. Let me give you a historical example of what Paul is saying here and how this works out in the Christian life. It was the year 1636, during the darkness of the Thirty Years' War, that a pastor named Martin Rinkard buried nearly 5,000 of his congregation in one year, which was an average of about 15 a day. His church was ravaged by war, death, and economic disaster. But despite all that, in the heart of that darkness, with the cries of fear outside his window, he sat down and wrote the words of a song for his children. Let me read you some of those words. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wondrous things has done in whom his world rejoices who from our mother's arms hath led us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. He was a man who knew thanksgiving Thanksgiving comes from the sovereign, providential love of God, not from the outward circumstances of life. See, Martin Rinkert understood Paul's prayer. See, Paul hears about the Ephesians' faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints, and he recognizes that in their conversion and in their transformation, there is an amazing beautiful, living example of God's sovereign grace intervening in the lives of his people. It is God who has worked in them, so Paul hasn't stopped thanking God. It's God alone who sovereignly and by his grace continues to do his transforming work in their lives. So it is God to whom we must pray, to whom we are to plead, that Jesus might continue his good work. And so Paul is committed to remembering them in his prayers. Why? Because God is sovereign. He is in control. And apart from God's transforming work, the Ephesians and we would never be converted. And apart from God's saving and transforming work, we would never grow into greater and greater maturity. So point two on your outline is this. God alone graciously continues to effect transformation. 
because we recognize that, that just as the reformers did, that we should spend time considering the progress of the gospel in the lives of those around us, of those in our congregation, those in our presbytery, those sitting right next to you. We should get reports from our missionaries. Why? So that we can spend time in praise and thanksgiving to our God for what He has effected. So let me ask you this question. When was the last time you spent time in prayers of praise and thanksgiving for news of people coming to Christ and growing in their faith? How often do you pray such prayers? Now the third point on your outline is this. Because God is sovereign, Paul offers intercession that God's holy purposes in the salvation of his people may be accomplished. See, Paul prays that Christians may grow in their knowledge of God because God has already told us that he intends to cause his people to grow in his grace. Let me see if I can explain this better. See, we as Christians are cry out, even so, come Lord Jesus, just as the Apostle John does at the end of the book of Revelation. And we do it because we know that Jesus has promised that he will come again. So too we pray that Jesus will continue his work of gracious purposes in those whom he has begun that good work. Why? Because he has chosen us in Christ, as Paul has already said in verse 4. He has in love predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus. Because he has shown us undeserved, lavish grace and showered us with spiritual riches. So point four on your outline is pray that your brothers and sisters in Christ at Parkway and beyond might know God better. Might know God better. Think about it. This this is the top thing on Paul's list of prayer requests. He stands in awe of God's sovereign power and grace. He writes, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. Why do you think that's got Paul's priority in prayer? Well, let me ask you this. Do you believe you know God well enough? I don't know about you. But the more I grow in my head knowledge and heart knowledge of the triune God, the more I want to know him even better. It's only in the stale, dry times of my life that I don't have that burning desire. But when I devote myself to biblical studies and prayer, I find an even greater growing hunger to know God better. Growing knowledge of God comes by approaching God and asking him to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation for others and for ourselves. I'm going to unpack this. But before I talk about what Paul means by receiving wisdom and revelation, I want to address what it means to know the Father of glory, as Paul describes him. See, when Moses wanted to know God, he begs him to show him his glory. And God does it even if it's only uh, the backside of his glory. 
Jesus often spoke of the glory he shared with the Father before the world began. And Jesus' actions on earth and on the cross as are described often as manifesting God's glory. So here's the point. As believers in Jesus, glory is our ultimate destination. And already we're being transformed into the likeness of our Lord with ever-increasing glory, as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So in effect, what Paul is saying in his prayer is that he is recognizing God's sovereign kingdom, he is showing gratefulness for God's gracious revelation of himself, and now he is speaking about our ultimate hope of dwelling in the midst of the glory of God. So Paul is praying that the Ephesians might receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they might know him better, that they might know something more of his holiness and glory. And this is point five on your outline. All God's blessings are mediated through his Son. So let me get back to that question. What does this mean by, what does Paul mean by wisdom and revelation? All the blessings we have are in Jesus. We were chosen, as Paul describes in verse 11, and God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, as Paul describes in verse 9. Unless God in all his glory and by his grace reveals to us more of his glory, we won't know him better. And it's through the Spirit that we receive this wisdom and revelation. In other words, it's through an intimate relationship, not merely reading good theology or good Christian books. So point six is good theology going hand in hand with prayer draws us closer to God through the Spirit. And the revelation and wisdom we receive resonates with God's revealed word. And it comes through the Bible. It's illuminating of his word to our hearts and minds. You know, today there are some traditions that believe you can get the spirit of revelation apart from Jesus Christ and the Bible. But that is not a biblical way of understanding what Paul is praying here. See, God's Spirit will enable us to know Him better. That's why we need to pray for that. And that revelation is always through His revealed Word. Because the climax of God's revelation is Jesus Christ Himself. There is nothing in this universe that is more important than knowing God more intimately. So we need to be zealous about praying for each other and for ourselves that we might receive this spirit of wisdom and revelation. And more particularly, Paul prays to God that we might have the insight to grasp certain vital truths here, that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened, as he puts it. It is God and God alone who both reveals and empowers us to grasp what he reveals. And that's why we need to pray. See, we'll never grow in the knowledge of God the way we should if we don't regularly intercede and plead with God for these things. If we're to grow and mature in Christ, 
We need to pray for ourselves and one another in these ways. And if we don't, then all we're doing is playing religious games. See, what Paul wants us to see with the enlightened eyes of our hearts is first to understand the hope of our calling, to get a vision of our calling, the hope to which we've been called, the purpose of our salvation, what we have to look forward to in Christ Jesus. The hope we have is the new heaven and the new earth when we will constantly be living in the presence of Jesus. That is our great hope. Point seven is this. Glory is our ultimate destination. It is the anticipation of being in the glory of Jesus eternally that is the hope before us. It has often been said that the most who identify themselves as Christian in our modern Western world don't really believe in hell any longer, and they rarely live as if they believe in heaven any longer either. Most Christians live investing in their comforts here on earth, investing in IRAs, retirements, bigger houses, luxury after luxury, but very little in eternity. Little to no investment in the lives of others that will, pay fruit, that will pay fruit in eternity. On the last day of judgment, when we stand before Jesus our Lord, what will we have to show him about how we invested our time, talents, and treasures? What is it that we pray for? A more healthy and comfortable life here on earth? The second blessing that Paul wants us to grasp is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In other words, you and I are God's inheritance. Think about that a moment. We are the gifts the Father has given Jesus. And God sees us in Christ. And this is point eight on your outline. Pray for what we all need. Wisdom and revelation. And it's only the Spirit of God that can reveal more of Himself and His ways to us. Are you willing to pray that prayer for me? Are you willing to pray that prayer for one another? Are you willing to pray that prayer for those sitting around you this morning? See, we need to know who we are. We need to know who we are as God sees us in Christ. Our value through the Father's eyes is established not in our own merits, but in Jesus Christ. It's not about our intrinsic worth in ourselves, but because we have been identified in Christ, chosen in Christ. His righteousness has been reckoned to us. Our destiny is to be joint heirs with Him. That is the vision that Paul prays for us. So this should encourage and strengthen us, but also humble us. For it's not our intrinsic work, and it's, it's not our intrinsic worth, and it's not our doing. Dr. Kirk Johnston tells the story of Roger, a man named Roger Sims, who was hitchhiking his way home on May 7th. His heavy suitcase made Roger tired. He was quite anxious to take off his army uniform once and for all. 
flashing the hitchhiking sign to oncoming cars. He lost hope when he saw when a car stopped and it was he saw it was a black sleek new Cadillac. But to his surprise, the car to, uh, the car stopped and he tossed his suitcase in the back and thanked the handsome well-dressed man as he slid into the front seat. Going home for keeps, said the driver. I sure am, Roger responded. Well, you're in luck if you're going to Chicago. Well, not quite that far. Do you live in Chicago? I have a business there. My name is Hanover. After talking about lots of things, Roger, who was a Christian, felt a compulsion to witness to this 50-ish-year-old, apparently quite successful businessman about Jesus. But he kept putting it off till he realized that he was about 30 minutes from his home. It was now or never, so Roger cleared his throat. Mr. Hanover, I'd like to talk to you about something very important. He then proceeded to explain the way of salvation, ultimately asking Mr. Hanover if he would like to receive Jesus as his Savior. To Roger's astonishment, the catalog pulled over to the side of the road. Roger thought he was going to be uh, kicked out of the car, but the businessman bowed his head and received Christ. Then he thanked Roger and said, this is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. Five years went by. Roger was married. He had a two-year-old boy and a business of his own. He was packing his suitcase for a business trip to Chicago when he found the small white business card Hanover had given him five years ago. In Chicago, he looked up Hanover Enterprises. A receptionist told him it was impossible to see Mr. Hanover, but he could see Mrs. Hanover. A little confused as to what was going on, he was ushered into a uh, lovely office and found himself facing what he would describe as a keen-eyed woman in her 50s. She extended him her hand. You knew my husband? Roger told how her husband had given him a ride when hitchhiking home after the war. Can you tell me when that was? Why, it was May 7th, five years ago, the day I was discharged from the Army. Anything special about that day? Roger hesitated. Should he mention giving his witness? Ah, well, since he'd come so far, he might as well take the plunge. Mrs. Hanover, I explained the gospel. He pulled over to the side of the road and wept against the steering wheel. He gave his life to Christ that day. Explosive sobs shook her body. Getting a grip on herself, she sobbed. I had prayed for my husband's salvation for years. I believed God would save him. And, said Roger, where is your husband, Mrs. Hanover? He's dead, she wept, struggling with words. He was in a car crash after, you left, let, after he let you out of the car. He never got home. You see, I thought God had failed me. Sobbing now uncontrollably, she added, I stopped living for God five years ago because I thought he didn't answer my prayers. 
And so this leads me to point nine on your outline. Paul prays for us to know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. Now in two weeks, we'll be looking at how that power works in us as we look at Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. But I think it's enough this morning for us to see that Paul isn't satisfied and we shouldn't be satisfied with a faith that is evangelical and reformed, has the right view of scriptures, believes the right things, but is dead. Has the right views on the atonement and justification, but is powerless in the transformation of the lives of people. And it's only God's power that will affect that work. And so we need to pray for it, as Paul prays for it. Pray that we together might experience this transforming work of God in our lives. The final point is point 10 on your outline. Because God is sovereign, Paul prays a reminder of what that power did in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. This is what Paul expects God's power to do in the lives of the Ephesians. And we'll see this in more detail, of course, in two weeks. But the power that Paul prays for and what we should pray for is like the working of God's mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when Christ was raised from the dead. Because of God's great love for you and for me, he has seated us in the heavenly realms. This is how God views you and me in Christ. And now my primary citizenship in Christ is heaven, not America. That is secondary or even tertiary. And my primary hope and citizenship is the new Jerusalem. See, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way, Paul writes in verses 22 and 23. See, all of God's sovereignty is enacted through Jesus, and all that sovereign power is for the good of you and me and our brothers and sisters sitting around us for his church. Christ is the head of everything, but he is particularly the head of the church, which is his body. All of God's sovereignty is enacted through the one who was crucified for you and for me. His crown of sovereignty over all the universe is a crown of thorns. So my prayers are directed to the sovereign Lord of the universe who died for you and for me. The Father placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Is this incentive enough to pray? To pray for God's purposes in the lives of our brothers and sisters here at Parkway? I pray that it is. Let's pray together.
gracious Lord of love, as we prepare our hearts once again for the communion table, we are reminded once again through your word mediated through Paul to the Ephesians in your inerrant, infallible word. We're reminded 